it's helpful for me sometimes to try to distill the the core character or characteristics of God. And I love how Paul uses this in a benediction. Paul ends one of his letters with, Now may the correction of our Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment of God, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Actually, that's, that's not what it says. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship or companionship of the Holy Spirit. If Paul had to distill the essence of God, it would come down to grace, love, and companionship. Not that correction and Judgment and conviction don't have a place in our theology, but if we're going to think in our minds of God, what does it mean to encounter, to approach God? Grace, love, and companionship. That's what you're thinking as you come to God. And that gets shown and displayed in different ways in the book of Genesis. It's the attempt of God to bring grace and love and companionship into physical form in creation that we see humans struggling with. And yet we see God's consistent grace and love and companionship with uh, broken, fallible, messed up people. And so the characters accentuate the consistency of God's grace, love, and companionship. And we're following, continuing the story of Jake the Snake, or Jacob, and um, he takes up a good chunk of this section of Scripture. So before we really turn next to uh, Rachel and uh, his wife, and then on to Joseph, let's spend another moment looking at Jacob and Kermit Hovey is going to bring a word. Kermit, why don't you come up? Let me pray for you. And then we'll take another look at Jacob. God, thanks for these character studies that give us a picture of how in our brokenness you meet us. Thank you for Kermit's life giving years to study you and to attend seminary and to think about how to integrate his life calling to serve you, to serve your church, into the gifts and spaces that you've placed him in. Now, Lord, as you've you've placed him here for this season, thank you for that. What do you have to tell us through Kermit's experience and eyes on Jacob, would you open our ears to hear in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Um, I'll just extend Scott's prayer by offering or an invitation for what I sometimes call the double-sided anointing of the Holy Spirit at times like this. And so as I begin... Holy Spirit, may you anoint my mouth, 
my words, my mind, that I may speak clearly and meaningfully to the people hearing this, gathered here and remotely beyond. And may you anoint the ears and minds of those who are listening, that they may attend and receive that which you have for them in what I have to offer through your spirits, presence, and blessing. Amen. Well, you may have noticed that uh, when I titled the sermon, I said, Jacob, when good things happen to bad people, question mark. Um, And that's to imply that we have questions. And I'm inviting you to come with an openness to asking questions and hearing questions that I may present here. Uh, I have long been disappointed and puzzled by the Old Testament stories of Jacob and other good guys who so often are behaving badly, probably in part due to the true yet often incomplete Sunday school versions that are often shared and talked about that end up colliding with the full stories found in the text if one begins to truly encounter the Bible in its authentic, raw, visceral, earthy form. So let me invite you all on a journey with me. This journey began afresh a couple of weeks ago when Scott Bessenecker invited me to step back up to the microphone as today's sermonator. For the first time in some years, the topic broadly proposed was the second part of Jacob's life. First off, let me confess that as a Christian, the Old Testament has not been my favorite testament. Granted, there's only two to choose from. Uh, People most disturbingly, people presented as the good guys, often seem to act like bad guys, misbehaving one way or the other. They all too often do things that seem wrong from their point of view and mine, like lying and stealing, or perhaps right from their point of view, but questionable or maybe wrong from mine, like having sex with their wife's personal assistant, or killing everybody in the city. Or perhaps wrong from their point of view, but not objectionable, seemingly right from mine, like eating shellfish or wearing blended fabrics. I'll warn you up front, this particular stretch of our shared journey will not address or resolve all of these incongruities. I know, Doug, I was thinking of you in particular, but I'll talk to you afterwards and we'll sort it out. I do, however, hope we'll find some light shed on at least some of them. In particular, wrestling with the story of Jacob felt like an opportunity to face directly one of the things that makes the Old Testament Difficult for me, and perhaps for you. What does it mean when good things happen to bad people? Note, I'm not talking about the other similar challenging issue of what does it mean when bad things happen to good people? Let's just say it can be difficult, even painful, making sense of what it means when, again, good things happen to bad people. On our journey of faith and discipleship, 
I believe we are called to behave according to God's will and live according to God's values to be faithful, moral people. We like to think that God is pleased by such behavior, that God honors, works through, and blesses such people. Yet somewhat confusingly, such good things plainly happen to good guys who are disturbingly bad people. They're used to express and fulfill God's plans and purposes. They receive blessings from God. And perhaps most disconcertingly, they are embraced and held up as heroes of the faith. How can that be? Well, let's just say Jacob is a prime example of this phenomenon. On the one hand, Jacob is supposed to be one of the good guys. The the Old Testament presents Jacob as a heroic central character, used and blessed by God. He stands as one of the pivotal actors in a lineage of promise and protection that the Bible runs through Abraham and Isaac, passes through Jacob to the tribes of Israel, Joseph, and beyond. Yet, Jacob was arguably and demonstrably a bad person. He was a person who did bad things. He did multiple bad things in his life, and they are preserved for us in the few chapters of Genesis containing his story. Of course, in the Old Testament, Jacob is not alone or unique in being a bad person a person who did bad things and nevertheless received good things. Just skip ahead a little bit in Genesis to read of his son Joseph's accolades and blessings. Then, some other time, please not now, we're in the middle of a sermon, seriously consider squaring that with how his mind games terrorized and traumatized his family, or how his insider trading in food commodities drives the masses into bankruptcy and servitude. Genesis 37 through 50, if you want to kind of catch up for future sermons. But at any rate, returning to Jacob, despite Jacob's immoral behavior, God worked through him, blessed him, and recognized him as a hero of the faith. Yet and again, despite Jacob's immoral behavior, God worked through him and with him to fulfill God's purposes. He blessed him abundantly and preserved a story that honored him as a hero of the faith. Jacob's bad behavior. Let's get a distilled overview of Jacob's bad behavior as manifested in his own conduct and perhaps arguably implied by that of his family. I'm going to read here an excerpt from The Ladder of Jacob, Ancient Interpretation of the Biblical Story of Jacob and His Children by James Kugel. I don't mean for this recap to imply that the sins of the father by themselves condemn the children or the sins of the children by themselves condemn the father. At the same time, Jacob's shortcomings arguably manifest in bad behavior and arguably set the stage for the bad behavior of his family members. Many writers from the, and I'm starting now with James Google's words, many writers from the time of Philo and afterward, including the founders of Christianity and rabbinic Judaism, saw the heroes and heroines of Genesis as moral exemplars, whose lives might serve as models for generations to come. This last, indeed, has been the dominant approach to the book of Genesis from late antiquity almost to the present day. But when it comes down to cases, this last approach runs into problems, particularly with regard to Jacob and his family. Jacob himself began or begins life as a bit of a sharpster. He cheats his brother Esau out of his rightful inheritance as the firstborn of the family. 
then tricks his poor blind father into giving him a paternal blessing intended for Esau. Next, Jacob travels to his uncle Laban's house, where he ends up acquiring, apparently by somewhat questionable methods, most of Laban's flocks, a prime form of wealth in ancient Israel. Thereafter, he departs like a thief in the night for his homeland of Canaan. Meanwhile, Jacob's wife Rachel, Laban's daughter, is shown in a hardly better light. The narrative reports that she stole her father's sacred images, then hid them in her saddlebags and lied to him to prevent their discovery. Of Jacob's children, one ends up sleeping with his father's concubine, and another ends up having relations with his own son's wife. When Jacob's only daughter ends up being raped, her brothers respond by invading the rapist town and killing every man in it, subsequently plundering all the townsmen's flocks and possessions, including wives and children. Sometime after that, Jacob's sons seize their younger brother Joseph, strip off his clothes, throw him into a pit with the intention of killing him. Then they relent and merely sell him as a slave to a passing caravan. Dysfunctional is probably the first word an observer would use to describe such a family in modern times. But whatever word is used, one would be hard-pressed on the face of things to claim that these stories about Jacob and his children could ever have been intended to provide readers with a set of moral exempla by which to steer their own course in this world. End of excerpt. And yet... God has indeed seen fit to preserve these stories with their sordid and morbid twists and turns for our education and benefit. At the same time, I must confess that I, and I suspect others of us, may be tempted to sweep the offensive darker parts of these stories into the Jungian shadow realm using the modern broom of dysfunctional. Such a convenient cleaning move risks trivializing the seriousness of the misbehavior while protecting us from the challenges of a closer examination. In my lay understanding of psychoanalyst Carl Jung, that which we hide, repress, or deny, don't look at, falls into shadow or becomes a shadow. Sadly, those shadows, again, that which we hide, repress, or deny, cannot, meanwhile, be processed, whether to be learned from, confessed, reprinted of, or even embraced. So let's pull some of them out of the dark and shine some light on them to see what we can learn. There are several memorable vignettes from Jacob's life story that illustrate his, shall we say, problematic behavior, which we may be attempted to ignore or rationalize. First, let me briefly recall to our attention the early escapades of Jake the Snake, told in Scott's teaching on Jacob some weeks ago. In particular, he recounted a couple of Jacob's manipulations and deceptions from Genesis 25:27. In one, from Genesis 25:27-34 in particular, Jacob demonstrates sibling rivalry rather than brotherly love. In an act of greed and cruelty, he manipulates his brother Esau into selling him his birthright for some stew. Genesis 27, 1 through 46 records the second, where and in a repeat performance of sibling rivalry, adding to it extra duplicity, greed, and cruelty, with a big plate full of help from his mother, literally, Rebecca, Jacob perpetrates a crime worthy of TV shows like Dallas, 
those of you who are old enough, or succession, perhaps a little more contemporary. An elaborate, multi-sensory charade of taste, smell, hearing, and touch allows Jacob to impersonate Esau, defraud Isaac, and steal the oldest son's blessing. Moving onward, we can, of course, pause to consider the wisdom and practicality, let alone rightness of polygamy, as Jacob enters into a multiple marriage with Leah and Rachel. As highlighted in Genesis 21-30, Laban, Leah and Rachel's father, did a little bait and switch, which Jacob agreed to. Although accustomed with substantial cultural and biblical precedent, Jacob chose to subject Leah to a loveless relationship, as specifically noted in Genesis 29-31. However customary such arrangements were in the Old Testament time, it seems marred by cruelty and manipulativeness by Jacob, and for that matter by Laban as well. And what do we make of Jacob choosing to help Rachel expand their family by accommodating her invitation for him to sleep with her personal assistant or maidservant, Bilhah, not once, but at least twice, in Genesis 30, 1 through 7. And this was followed in like manner with Jacob spending time with Leah's, Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, to also result in two more sons in Genesis 39 through 12. dysfunctional families, perhaps it's more than just an immediate family. Nevertheless, an additional story comes, and I must confess to not having found a total explanation for what I'll call the mandrake deal, but somehow that allowed Leah to purchase bedding rights with Jacob by providing her son's mandrakes to Rachel. This incident certainly sounds like purchasing sex. In Genesis 30, 25-43, we find a record of a time when Jacob negotiated a curious deal with Laban involving breeding practices without match in modern animal husbandry, to my knowledge. Somehow, pattern sticks, combined with some actually conventional breeding, resulted in strong sheep and goats of stripe-spotted and dark color, while Laban's light solid color livestock ended up breeding out as weaklings. Of course, in the version of this livestock story that uh, Jacob later told Leah and Rachel, found in Genesis 31, 4 through 13, God is described by Jacob as having assured him, he, God, was arranging for the breeding results as a rectification for the abuse Jacob had suffered at the hands of Laban. Then, in Genesis 31, 17 through 21, sometime after the multi-patterned livestock deal, Jacob reported receiving word from God that it was time for him to return with his family to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. However, he specifically reported as having deceived Laban, his father-in-law, and fled unannounced. This resulted in what in Yiddish might be called a big mishigash that was ultimately resolved with an amicable agreement and a parting of the ways. Of course, going back to Isaac and the land of Canaan meant, as the story unfolds, encountering Esau, 
who Jacob had not left on the best of terms. Despite the apprehension Jacob had at such a prospect and the essentially above-board steps Jacob took as described in Genesis 32, 1 through 21 and 33, 1 through 17, he only fell prey to one deceptive move that I could find at any rate in that story. After agreeing to follow Esau back to Seir, S-E-I-R, if you're going to check pronunciation, he stopped in Sukkoth instead. Now, this is perhaps the darkest story. How Jacob handled the rape of Dinah, his daughter, which was perpetrated by Shechem, son of Hamor, and the massacre of the city of Shechem, perpetrated by Jacob's sons, demonstrates to my reading a failure of both moral leadership and moral vision. Reported in Genesis 33, 18 through 34, 31, while Jacob himself is recorded as negotiating with Hamor and Shechem, his sons entered into bargaining and did so in bad faith. After conning the men of the city into being circumcised so that they could become like one people, the sons of Jacob attack, killing all the males, still handicapped from their, shall we say, painful surgery, and taking flocks, herds, all their wealth, and all their women and children, and everything in the houses. Jacob allows this to happen, or at least fails to have the control or the will to stop it. As if that is not troubling enough, he then chastens Simeon and Levi, who spearheaded this assault, after untold disproportionate death and destruction, with this self-centered complaint. You have brought trouble on me. No admonishment or punishment is recorded. So, regardless of how bad or how deep into shadow these incidents may be, nevertheless, overall Sunday school truths that are true truths and good things remain. Jacob was used in other parts of the story to express and fulfill God's plans and purposes. Jacob received blessings from God, and Jacob was embraced and held up as a hero of the faith. Jacob clearly represents a case of good things happening to a bad person. So what does it mean? What does it mean when good things like these happen to a person who does bad things like Jacob? I offer some key particulars in three major areas. The nature of God, the nature of scripture, and the nature of people. These aren't exhaustive lists that I'll be sharing, but they, I believe, help further illuminate these bad actions or shadows, and how they coexist with the good things highlighted in the, the true but perhaps incomplete pictures that we sometimes carry of the Old Testament stories and of Jacob's story in particular. The nature of God. The nature of God includes grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, not by works, so that no one can boast. Redemption. For all have sinned, Romans 3, 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Mercy. Psalm 103, 8 through 10. 
The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Forgiveness, Micah 7:18. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Love, 1 John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Sovereignty, Proverbs 16, 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And now the nature of Scripture, which includes, one, that the Bible, Scripture, is filled with narratives, yet narratives are descriptive, not prescriptive. They describe what happened. They don't prescribe what should happen. Not necessarily either then or now. Scripture is inspired, and hence we can reasonably expect that there is some meaning and reason behind what it says and includes. Scripture is not always clear. What it says or means requires interpretation, understanding, and application. That, in turn, requires a humble meeting of all of our being with the Holy Spirit, Holy Scripture, and whatever knowledge and information we need to bring to bear to expand our understanding of that which is found therein. Third, the nature of people. The nature of people includes that they, oops, that we are imperfect. Imperfect people are the only people God has to work with. Two, fallible. People make bad decisions and make mistakes all the time, regardless of how much God loves or forgives them and regardless of how faithful and thoughtful they may be. Three, culture bound. The culture and context people live in greatly limits them. They tend to see only what they see and know only what they know, which to some extent goes without saying, but how often do we forget that simple fact? Not surprisingly, they tend to not see what they don't see and not know what they don't know. And while not surprising, also something that we may allow ourselves to forget in our hubris. Jacob's behavior, just like mine and yours, results to a great extent from culture and context. So, what does it mean when good things happen to bad people? Well, first off, I think all of the above that we have shared, reviewed, uh, discussed can lead us to a position of humility and reverence if we allow it. First, by the nature of people, neither Jacob nor any of us are God or are perfect. We are all Jacob and any of us that we might pick from the crowd here imperfect, fallible, and culture-bound. We are all works in process. By the nature of Scripture, none of us know perfectly with absolute certainty what the Bible says or means. It needs interpretation by 
surprise imperfect humans with imperfect skills and imperfect knowledge. Nevertheless, Scripture can challenge us, inform us, and even transform us if we don't hide, repress, or deny any of it, even the darkest, scariest, and dare I say perhaps even shame-inducing or incongruous parts of it from ourselves. Thirdly, we are not God. We do not understand all there is to understand about God or God's word. Yet the nature of God gives us hope and more. That nature invites us to know redemption through his love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace while recognizing his sovereignty. We can know that we are loved and can be blessed to be a blessing despite, despite our failings and failures. Like disturbingly bad people in the Old Testament, such as Jacob, we can also be blessed with good things. We can be used to express and fulfill God's plans and purposes. We can receive blessings from God, and even if only in some small way, we perhaps can be embraced by God and held as heroes of the faith. So, Good things happen to bad people, even when they are failing to be the good people they're supposed to be, and even if they are heroes of the faith. That is how it was then and is now, because that is how God was then and is now. Full of grace, love, mercy, and more. Meeting Jacob where he was, meeting us where we are, and moving us forward, picking us up, over and over again. So going forward, living lives of faith and humility today, let us recognize our own flaws with mercy and grace and in the same way recognize the flaws of others, even those we might look up to, those that might be heroes of the faith in our eyes or perhaps theirs, heroes behaving less than heroically, let us recognize our need for and reliance on God's grace. Let us follow God's call to extend grace, love, forgiveness to others, whoever and whenever they may be, even if they are supposed good guys but actually behaving badly. And let us trust in God's sovereignty and redemptive power. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you for the rocky and rolling hills of your story through scripture that you have preserved for us. The good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, and how you have demonstrated in it and through it that you are a God of love and grace and mercy and that in calling us to you, you call us to accept and embrace and live out those parts of your character, that we too may be agents and conduits of mercy, grace, love, forgiveness, and that we, we may build a community of faith and redemption together 
that will give you glory, that will give us the safe space we need to recognize and experience your love and your forgiveness in spite of the ups and downs, the falls and stumbles, the outrageous misbehavior that may yet still come because we are your children and your children are all too often foolish and imperfect and fallible. And yet, you love us still. Be with us now, we pray. In your son's name, amen. Jacob had regrets near the end of his life. I I do. I like to think that regret is a sign of growth. I heard a sermon once, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. As this positive thing, like, you know, we want to end your life with this cry. It would be awesome, but there's something about regret that signals you're growing, Scott. Because you're looking back on behavior after having learned something. And so as we see things in our lives and have regret, as I hope Jacob did at some point, I don't, it's hard not to let that discourage me. But there is no growth without regret, or regret is a sign of growth, or something like that. And so as we, look at our broken, fallible, messed up lives and have regrets. May we seek to embrace the growth that they suggest and to move into deeper and deeper places where we begin to reflect the grace, the love, and the fellowship of the Godhead.